welcome to the Swansea Cyber Law and Security Podcast. My name is Sarah Kreyer and I'm a PhD student here at what was formerly uh, Swansea University College of Law and Criminology, but since Saturday we are now the Hillary Rodham Clinton School of Law. And I am joined, as usually, by Dr. Patrick Bishop. Hi, Patrick. Hello. And um, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, I'm Patrick Bishop. I'm a senior lecturer also in the Hillary Rodham Clinton School of Law. Fabulous. So we've had a bit of a break, but we're back now. Um, Teaching has started. The university is back in full gear and we're back with a podcast. So we've got three kind of themes for you today. Uh, We'll talk about the Equifax data breach, of course, that's been the major story of the past couple of months. And we'll also talk a little bit about some news on um, online content regulation and also some news on the response to cybercrime. Okay, so um, the Equifax data breach, that was pretty huge. (laughs) So... Uh, The breach itself, this was back in September and Equifax disclosed that about 143 million customers may have have had their information compromised um, in a security breach, a cyber security breach. Um, This this also included about 400,000 Brits and 100,000 Canadians Um, and the incident which started around mid-May Uh, was only detected in July Uh, and apparently it was because they didn't patch. (laughs) Common problem. (laughs) Yeah so um, I mean a common problem that would have been easily remedied which is partly why um, they've had such bad press with this but part of the reason was also the nature of the information which was breached so we're talking about people's national insurance numbers names, addresses, dates of birth, um, so not information that you can just go and change. And we should say as well that Equifax is, a, a, among other things, a credit rating agency, yeah. uh, so they help give credit ratings to companies, individuals, etc. Yeah. So almost by definition, the, the information they hold would be useful to would-be fraudsters and the like. Exactly. Yeah. Um, now, if you think the breach itself was bad, <laughs> worse than the breach almost, um, was their response. Um, so they set up a website, which was and is www.equifaxsecurity2017.com, um, through which customers could check then whether or not their data um, had been caught up in the breach. Now, Um, There were lots of reports that people were having trouble accessing the website. Um, Not only that, but the the website was probably set up by a marketing company, right, that was employed to deal with the fallout. So they weren't IT experts or anything. Um, And I, I, I haven't got it in front of me here, but I'm pretty sure it was a WordPress site. Okay. WordPress is very well known for, you know, the fact that from a security perspective, yeah. you know, it's not it, it's not the best tool yeah. out there. Um and and for that reason and because of the nature of the information it was collecting, it was being blocked by all these different um security services mm. as a as, as a potential phishing site. Okay. 
some irony there, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, so, um, uh, yeah. And on top of all of that, um, the victims were initially asked to agree to take any dispute to arbitration and forfeit the right to take part in any class action lawsuit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, predictably, the bad yeah. press from the response to the breach yeah. was even worse than the actual breach, which was already pretty serious. I think there's a golden rule here that if you want people to launch a class action against you, then ask them not to do so, <laughs> and you, yeah. you'll get your class action that way. Oh, <laughs> uh, dear. Yeah, so, you know, the consequences, yes, you know, class action yeah. lawsuits have begun, um, and Equifax shares have taken a huge hit, Um Three top executives, um, including the CEO of, uh, of, of God. Oh, no, sorry, I'm confusing this. The CEO has actually resigned. Okay. Um, which is unusual, um, but still people have said, oh, you know, he just resigned, you know, instead of being Say sacked. It, yeah. You know. Or the um, other view would be, you know, it was on his watch that the mess was created. Why not stay and deal with the mess? Yeah, yeah. So, um But on top of all of that, then, there were three Equifax executives, including the chief financial officer, who sold um, a combined 1.8 million worth of stock um, after the breach was detected, but before it was made public. Okay. So... (laughs) A a remarkable coincidence. Yes, yes, remarkable. Um, Although we should say, on legal grounds, that their view is that they had no knowledge of yes. the intrusion when they sold their shares. Yeah. But it was just a coincidence that they happened to sell these shares after the breach, but before it was made public. But they say they yeah. had no knowledge of the breach at the time they sold their shares. Of course, of course. And of course we <laughs> have to take that at face value. Of, co- of yeah. course we do, of yeah. course we do. Um, yeah, so, yeah, so that was a pretty major breach, and I guess... Um, they were only lucky that it happened now and not bef- not after May 25th, 2018. Yes, because <laughs> of course that date that everyone is hastily preparing for is the date that the General Data Protection Regulation comes into force across the, the EU. And one of the headline parts of that, which we've discussed in previous podcasts, is the, the sanctions available, which are 20 million euros or 4% of international turnover, whichever is the highest. Yeah. And I'm guessing Equifax's international turnover is considerably more than um, 20 million. 20 million. Yeah. And, yeah. and so it would, you know, it could, if this had happened in May next year, it could potentially leave them open to a very, very large fine indeed. Yep. Yep. I think what this also shows is. The public generally think that if a company's reputable and large, in this case a large multinational trusted company, that when they enter their details into uh, their systems, uh, that it's safe, that it's secure. You sort of assume that a large multinational company has an equally large and sophisticated uh, cyber security department which would deal with these problems. But as we yeah. keep seeing time and time again, that isn't actually the case. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because they had... um, So, 
they would have had about nine working weeks mm. in which to apply this patch. Yeah. So this was an, a, a known vulnerability. It had been a patch had been released uh, by um, Apache Struts um, for nine weeks before mm. before the the breaches kind of you know said to have because of course we said they don't tell you exactly when they were yeah. breached but uh, that, that at least they had at least nine weeks to yeah. do this so it's yeah it's pretty shocking really yeah so that was uh, our first story for this month uh shall we move on to the next yeah topic? so i think i'll i'll take the lead on this one fabulous and so there's two essentially two one european one uk domestic um stories to talk on and it's all about illegal content online um so obviously we're talking about any form of illegal content so the most obvious one would be um, uh, child pornography and other forms of illegal pornography but also in today's security climate would also include encouragement to terrorism um, and sites posts etc which glorify you uh, or encourage uh, terrorism so the first, as I said, the first story comes from the EU Commission and they've issued guidance to uh, what they call online platforms, OPs for short, for tackling illegal content uh, online. So this is guidance. It's not legally enforceable. It's not like right. a regulation or, or a piece of legislation where you have to do this and you have to do that. So it's simply a sort of code of practice, good guidance, uh, a set of guidelines and principles which are all designed to uh, remove as quickly as possible illegal content from online um, platforms. So this follows the European Commission's long stated aim of uh, trying to encourage a self-regulatory approach by online platforms. So this might be an example of what regulatory scholars call directed self-regulation or regulated self-regulation. You encourage, uh, possibly move to coercing right. uh, the target audience, in this case operating platforms, towards adopting a self-regulatory um, approach. Of course, self-regulation has a bit of a bad press, forgive the pun, particularly in the UK, because we had, or still have to a large extent, self-regulation of the press yeah. and that did nothing or very little to prevent the phone hacking scandal and the, uh, and the Leveson report or the problems discussed in the Leveson report etc. So I think sometimes or well, certainly in this case this is treated as an example of well, we'll give you an opportunity to regulate yourselves because always in the background implicitly in the EU's case, explicitly in the UK's case, is the threat of direct regulation. You get your house in order. If you don't do that, then we'll, yeah. we'll come in with, with um, uh, firmer regulations. So what, what are they expected to do? Well, there's, there's a, a, a long list of things. Uh, and for reasons of time, we won't go through each. If you search the EU Commission's website, you can find a, a default guidance. But first of all, the OPs are encouraged to have the resources necessary, and what we mean here is legal resources, to understand what's referred to as legal frameworks. So at the moment, or not at the moment, but generally it could be the case that I, OPs maybe not, maybe do not have the legal expertise 
to determine whether something's illegal or not. Right. And of course, if you operate in on a pan-European or even a global basis, what's illegal in the EU might not be illegal in America or Japan, etc. So it is a problem, uh, but the guidance encourages them to have those resources so they can make that judgment themselves uh, and they can make a judgment that this is legal or illegal. At the moment, I think because of the prevalence of the notice and takedown approach, as soon as a, an operating platform is made aware that something is potentially legal, they simply remove it, mm-hmm. uh, which is a rational response from them, but from the perspective of freedom of speech, it's questionable because, you know, obviously if you're dealing with something that's inciting terrorism mm-hmm. uh, or child pornography, that can be more of a clear-cut case. But if you're talking about potential infringement of intellectual property rights or potentially defamatory material, then that's more questionable if it's taken down straight away when that person could be making a valid point that wouldn't actually be defamatory for for whatever reason. It wouldn't be actionable. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's the first thing. So they're trying to get them to have more awareness of their legal responsibilities rather than relying on, you know, we'll only take it down when there's a court order or someone tells us that something's illegal. But that's not an easy task by any stretch of the imagination because of the first of all, the inherent uncertainties in the legal regulation. And as I said, the global nature, you have different jurisdictions, might have different yeah. uh, um, standards. I'm very surprised about the inclusion of you know, defamatory content yeah. in this, because, I mean, that's a minefield. I, I don't know how yeah, um, an online platform can make that judgment. <laughs> well, it, it takes, they, don't tend not, they tend not to make the judgment, from my experience at least, if someone complains to Facebook, Twitter, there's a statement that you've hosted which is defamatory or me harms my reputation, then they tend to take it down straight away without any right. mm-hmm. investigation into whether that is defamatory or not. And it really does take a brave uh, operating platform to say, no, we think that's justifiable. <laughs> we think that comment is an expression of opinion. Or we think there might be a defence to that, such as it's true. Yeah. It takes a brave one to a brave operating platform to remain to leave that accessible because then they are open to um, uh, litigation themselves. Yeah. And of course, if you have the choice of the you know the the sole blogger who might not be terribly wealthy and a large social media site or an ISP, etc., of course you're going to sue the the ISP because they will have the resources to pay you any compensation. So it is very questionable from a free speech perspective, but as we said, it uh, you know it's them behaving rationally. Yeah. So the other, there's lots to other things to note, but as I said, we won't deal with any other, uh, all of them. Another part of the thing which is quite interesting is that OPs are encouraged to cooperate closely with what are called trusted flaggers. Uh-huh. So these are organisations uh, such as Europol's Internet Referral Unit and in the UK the Internet Watch Foundation whose job it is is to flag up potentially illegal um, content. So as I said, there's a lot more at the European stage but there's been a domestic UK response to this as well. Right. And... They seem to have adopted more of a a stick as opposed to carrot mentality <laughs> uh, because the, the culture secretary, the Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport, who has basic 
oversight of the media system, the internet, uh, etc. in the UK has threatened, in inverted commas, uh, um, social media platforms and other uh, um, uh, operating platforms with an online abuse levy. Right. Uh, basically, a, essentially a tax that they have to pay each year and then that tax can be ploughed back into education campaigns mm-hmm. and, and um, education to young people about the dangers of, of online material. Yeah, um, so is this focused on bullying? And- not so much bullying, it is, but it's also focused more on, on content. So I think the, the figures here that almost a fifth of 12 to 15-year-olds in the UK have almost 20% have said they've seen some, something online that they find nasty right. um, um, or worrying. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, and if you sample Donald Trump, people who follow Donald Trump on Twitter, <laughs> that would probably go up to 80-90%. Um, so it's about, it's about bullying, but it's also about them being exposed, exposed to, to, right, yeah. I see, to um, content that's upsetting. Yeah. So basically this links in with the European approach and the government wants to encourage operating platforms to sign up to the the scheme or at least follow the scheme but as i said they are operating with a a stick in the background that if you don't self-regulate then we'll step in Mm -hmm. and we'll more heavily regulate you in the form of this uh, online um, um, levy so that's the content part of it interesting Um, i also noted how some of the some of the guidance from the european commission obviously it's all very aligned with the GDPR and with yeah. or, or other areas. It's, so it's aligned with the GDPR. It's also aligned with uh, Article 14 of the uh, e-commerce directive. Right. Which basically says that uh, if you do not have knowledge of illegal content, then you have an immunity against pecuniary remedies, uh-huh. compensation or criminal sanctions. And so, of course... A lot of the Commission's guidance, by doing the things that the guidance suggests they should do, that will very often give them that knowledge yeah. and so will remove that element of, of protection. And right. I think that's no coincidence, that's probably yeah. deliberate. Yeah. Yeah. So that they realise, okay, because we have these reporting mechanisms, for example, because we've been told about illegal content by a trusted flagger such as the Internet Watch Foundation, we now have knowledge of illegal content and they're more likely then... To, to, remo- be, to, to be liable for any yeah. for not removing it. Yeah. yeah, then they have to act expeditiously, which means very quickly, but no one's quite certain how quickly mm. expeditiously mm-hmm. means to disable access to the material. If they do that, they're fine. If they do not disable access to the material, then they can be liable either for criminal penalties or uh, um, compensation. Yeah, so I guess we'll have to wait and see if companies will actually follow this guidance because if by following it they're creating an extra uh, compliance burden for themselves. Yeah, um, so there is the potential <laughs> problem of, of, of willful ignorance. Yeah. That there's an incentive, a perverse incentive for op- operating platforms not to know what's going on in their platforms because of the effect of Article 14. Uh, and this is supposed to encourage them to move away from that willful ignorance <laughs> right. position. Because under the, the directive itself, it's things you know about, the legal content you have knowledge of, or there's facts and circumstances from which it can be clearly implied that there's mm-hmm. uh, um, illegal content. 
just what English lawyers would call constructive knowledge. You don't actually know about something, but you should know about something. Yeah. So it's slightly broader than just knowledge. Uh-huh. But of course, when you think of the sheer volume of material on online platforms, then it's very difficult to prove that they actually knew about illegal yeah. content unless someone has flagged it up. But I think if they follow this guidance, it will give them that knowledge more often. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that's the design. So they've acquired the, you know, and let's give them a benefit of the doubt. You know, we assume that they want to remove online content. Yeah. They'd want to remove, you know, posts which encourage terrorism or, or posts which bully other people, etc. because that's the right thing to do. And they're not just doing it to protect themselves from, from being sued. So, you know, you, you can look at it in that more benevolent light if you sort of suspend your natural cynicism <laughs> for for a second. But it is yeah. interesting, and in the future it'll be interesting to see how much of a role these guidelines play in cases of Article 14. Yeah. Um, uh, and, uh, and whether that is being used as something that's given them knowledge or not. So I think there's a lot more to be said about this. But yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll have to wait Very see. early days, yeah. So watch this space. Fabulous. Okay, I think we're ready to move on to the next okay. topic. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Uh, so uh, our next and final topic is about responses to cybercrime. And this is very much focused on the UK. So we've picked up on um, two stories that kind of highlight how um, cybercrime is perhaps uh, being taken uh, more seriously. Uh, so the first one was um, a story uh, from The Telegraph. It was also um, reported in a a number of financial um, uh, newspapers about a new cyber court uh, which has been built to tackle online fraud in the financial sector. Uh, This is going to be built in the City of London and it's going to be a state-of-the-art uh, purpose-built building to kind of uh, uh, deliver on, on, on this area. Uh, it's going to be funded by the City of London, so there's a very close connection here yeah. with industry. Um, and even though it will hear other uh, criminal and civil cases, it's going to be focused on economic crime and cybercrime. And of course this is partly connected with Brexit, because yes. uh, it's it's an attempt of, of the City of London Corporation to to signal that they you know they're being proactive in in protecting the status of the UK's financial yeah. sector um, internationally, so that um, with the country's exit from the European Union, uh, London-based finance firms uh, 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 will still have the ability to kind of carry out with business as yeah. usual. Um, I mean, I think. We- with Brexit, the, the the huge concern amongst the city people is that at the moment London is a world centre for finance, uh, stocks and shares and all other sorts of um, financial transactions. And in a post-Brexit world, there's some other cities in London, in, sorry, in the European Union, um, Paris, Hamburg and others, who are actively trying to remove that status from the UK and say you can't have a hub for financial services based outside the EU. It has to be within the EU. So as you said, I think this is a response to that, to say, well, look how responsible we are. 
look how grown up and professional we are and you'd be a fool to remove all that expertise from London yeah. to, to yeah. the EU. Yeah. So it is that is a slightly cynical view, but I'm sure that <laughs> if that's not the main objective, it is a an added bonus. Yeah, right. Um, okay. I mean, I perhaps I'm being cynical. But, but I, what, I what think you... m- more principally, or on a more principled basis, I think there's this, this problem that, generally speaking, well, very few cybercrime or cyber fraud cases get to court anyway, uh, for various reasons, yeah. which you could talk about in far more detail than me because of your expertise on online fraud. But there's this feeling that judges are perhaps not the really expert in cyber issues. Mm-hmm. And by having this specialist court, which focused predominantly on cybercrime, then you have a body of judges who would become more expert in that particular right. field. Uh, and you, I think it's a sign of a maturing discipline or in other areas of, so for example, you have a family court. You yeah. have a probate court, a court which is focused on family matters and probate matters. You know, in environmental law, for many years, there was a debate of whether we needed an environmental court. And it's right. all based along this expertise issue that you, you specialise yeah. uh, yeah. and yeah. you then gain up a body of expertise on a particular area. Mm. So seen in that light, it's a positive development. Yeah. But yeah. I'm sure there's a large element of, of yeah. PR here, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. as well. It'd be interesting to see introduction of these specialized courts had an impact on um how 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 quickly cases get through you know because with respect to fraud in particular first of all if you look at the ministry of justice stats there's actually there's been less cases that actually made it to the court over the past year or so but then when they do make it to court, it takes on average, I think it's something like six times longer for a case of fraud to make yeah. it through than, a, than a, a case of theft. Because almost by definition, fraud is a complex yeah. business. Yeah. You know, and so, these high profile, large scale fraud, some of the trials can go on for literally months. Yeah. And it's very, very technical. You know, it's one of the areas where you can actually dispense with a jury. Uh, because, uh, you know, on the basis that this is far too complicated for the average person, you know, if you're talking about, you know, derivatives and short selling and, you know, all these complex financial instruments. Uh, and so, it, you know, it might be that when you have that expertise, that there's, there's less explanation needed and the cases might be quicker. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So we don't know, so, yeah, it, it, we'll see, yeah. it remains to be seen how, how successful it is. But we, again, it's something to watch to see how that, that, that pans out uh, in, in the future. For sure. And of course, then we also had um, a, an article that was written um, for The Telegraph, again, by Jeremy Fleming, who is the new director of GCHQ, um, formerly um, MI5 uh, guy. So he... He wrote um, a, an article entitled uh, GCHQ is coming out of the shadows to protect Britain's economy from cyber criminals. Uh, so, f- from cyber criminals, yes, that's it. Um, so, it's just a very public statement uh, by GCHQ about the importance of um, um, cybercrime for mm. uh, the, the government and in terms of security priorities. Uh, and of course, cyber has been a tier one threat since the 2015 National Security mm. Strategy was published. Um, and there's been a huge uh, investment 
um, into cyber uh, as an area, the development of, uh, of the National Cyber uh, Security Center, for instance. Um, yeah, and the government is committed to spending mm. uh, even even more over the next couple of years. I think it's 1.9 billion between 2016 and 2021 um, to to continuously uh, uh, update. Uh, yeah, cyber capacity. So there we are. So it's interesting statement. First of all, on a broader level, it's interesting that these days, ahead of MI5, MI6 head of GCHQ, the General Communications Headquarters, I think, which is a sort of the national snooping agency, for want of a better <laughs> description. That now they make public statements, you know, whereas in, in days gone by and they operated in the shadows, um, now they're becoming, I wouldn't say household names by any stretch of the imagination, but a, yeah. a certain type of person would know about them and their existence uh, and what they, they do. Um the other interesting thing is is this focus, you know, on using the terrorism word. Yeah. Because, you know, that seems to be the public threat number one. Yeah. At, at the moment. Yeah. Um, with various terrorist attacks all over the world, including the, the UK. Uh, and to say it's as serious as terrorism uh, is, is a pretty bold statement. So, as I said, I think... We seem to be very cynical today, so I'll I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll adopt the balance approach. Yes. The cynical view is, well, you know, the government has lots of powers already in the form of the Investigatory Powers Act 2016 to, you know, the so-called Snoopers Charter. And the more they hype the cyber threat, the more justification there seems for the very uh, extensive range of powers that they have mm-hmm. uh, in relation to online transactions and online activity etc so that's the cynics view the more generous view if you like is that well it's great that they're actually treating the cyber threat more seriously because as we know for the last few years of the national crime statistics that cyber crime and and fraud taken together make up about half of all criminal Mm -hmm. activity and of course he's not talking about the person who is you know and defrauded out of a hundred pounds on an on an electronic auction site. Yeah. Uh, given his status, he's talking about far more large scale yes, threats, presumably yeah. to to national security. Yeah. But I yeah. think the more cybercrime is talked about, the more it's mentioned as a serious threat. Uh, then you know the more seriously it will be taken. So in in that light, it's a positive development. Yeah, yeah. But as I said, the cynical amongst us might well think is this them justifying the powers and, and might be a bid for further powers in in the future. Yeah, yeah. And it's not to say that the motivation for pursuing those powers is necessarily again like part of a huge conspiracy. You know, I think no. I think we have many people who have an operational focus and their job is to you know, protect the public, yeah. and of course, we we've talked about this a lot with respect to cyber yeah. cases on the podcast and and off the podcast. All of all of the limitations that you know law enforcement and prosecutors will face. Yeah, um, and I I understand the urge to try and create the legal frameworks that enable investigations to proceed. I I certainly understand that motivation. 
but of course then you know the price for security can't be such that that uh, our freedoms and civil liberties yeah. are compromised and it is, it is a balancing act and you know it will always be so and i think where you place yourself on that spectrum it's really a question of ideology yeah you know in the in this cyber networking conference that we held here a couple of weeks ago there was a panel that was very very pro privacy yeah uh, and, and you know and so they would say that really uh, you know I've, I've done nothing wrong but what i do online is no business of the state is no business of the government and there may be more towards the right of the political spectrum there's this mm-hmm. way well if you haven't done anything wrong why do you care the government has this information uh, about you so it's a very complex issue yeah it's very difficult to uh, resolve and of course if you go for the compromise approach you never you might please the people in the middle but you might please no one you might please no one exactly (laughs) so you know you go for the middle approach Uh, the privacy advocates still think it's too much the law what might be called law enforcement advocates the you know if you've done nothing wrong you've got nothing to hide viewpoint those who subscribe to that viewpoint think well we haven't got enough powers so it's a really difficult one for uh, for government to uh, to handle um and i don't know the answer to the question no um, no i don't, but, uh, I don't. i'd probably be home secretary if i did <laughs> but until then <laughs> we'll work on we'll work, it yeah <laughs> brilliant i think that concludes uh the podcast so thank you for listening and uh, do you have any things you want to advertise before we go? I think I don't think we do. No, no. I I've hit a lull as well. You know, yeah. I'm just preparing seminars. Yeah, it's it's, it's that time of year. It so, is. Um, There's <laughs> nothing really, I think, going on in the imminent future. But we've always got things to uh, to plan. So watch, yeah. again, watch this space. Yeah, I bet you when I turn this off, I'm going to remember all these yeah. other things. But anyway, <laughs> see you next time. Bye. Bye. What's our new name? We've got a new name. Yeah, but we should mention that.